Hi, I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. Off Air with Jane and Fee is going live. We are taking to the stage at the amazing Crucible Theatre in Sheffield on Friday the 31st of May. It'll be a night full of surprises. We'll have a special guest, we'll involve you in the audience and we'll embarrass ourselves. You really won't want to miss it. Well, the surprises, we don't yet know what's in it, so it genuinely is a night of surprises. Well, you've surprised me already. Uh, it's not just us. Our live show is part of an exciting new podcast festival called Cross wires which is taking place in some really amazing venues across sheffield from the 31st of may to the 2nd of june so other podcasters that you'll be able to see include katie price Catherine ryan ramash ranganathan and the original adam buxton but there's also a whole host of free fringe events family shows surprise acts and after parties that jane and i haven't yet been invited to I'm sure it's only a matter of time. Head to crosswires.live for tickets and more information. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer. And I'm Gabriel McCarthy, and we thank you for joining us on this Thursday. Now, much as I wanted to go in detail about the exciting return leg between uh, Burton Albion and Manchester City in uh, the Carabao Cup, we're not going to be doing that today. No. We're going to be tackling the subject of Premier League Wells. Um, and that's partly because we're joined by someone who's written a book about it. The book is called The Club, How the English Premier League Became the Wildest, Richest, Most Disruptive Force in Sports. Now, I should point out, he did not write the book by himself. He's one of two people who wrote the book. The other one is a very talented journalist named Jonathan Clegg. This one is the other guy who wrote the book. It's Joshua Robinson. Thanks for having me. Equally as talented. No? <laughs> yes, but, but they what are a way to collaborative make effort, collaborative effort. <laughs> uh, also joining us down the line, a man who's been covering this subject for The Times for some time. It is the chief sports reporter, Martin Ziegler. Let's start with you, Joshua. Your day job is as the European sports reporter for The Wall Street Journal. The book charts the rise of the Premier League as, as a brand and a business from the start of the competition to the, to the present day. So how different would you say the Premier League is now from when it started in 1992? I think it's easy to forget what kind of parlous state English football was in uh, in the late 80s. Uh, you know, there had been multiple stadium tragedies. The stadiums in general were not fit for purpose. There was a high risk of violence when you went to games. The quality of football was far from what it is today. And uh, generally, it was it was seen as a uh, as a kind of toxic environment. And, and also, it's important to remember, it was very badly televised. At the start of the 1985-1986 season, because of a dispute between the league and ITV and BBC, there was no football on television in Britain for uh, the first half of that season. Wow. So it, it's kind of unimaginable today when we have wall-to-wall coverage, when the stadiums are all these sort of glimmering uh, modern facilities, when transfer fees are in the tens of millions and we don't even think about it. And we sort of assume that any lineup is going to have five, six, seven foreign players who naturally want to come to English football. There was a key moment with the first television contract when everything looked as if ITV were going to get it. And then it ends up going to Sky. One executive I know says that, who also happens to be a professional wrestling fan, you know, compares it to the Bret Hart screw job 
Can you tell us a little bit more about the mechanics? I don't think – I mean, I think the story has been told, but people forget this. Yeah, the – About the swerve. The, the leaders of the breakaway, people like David Dean, the former vice chairman of Arsenal, Martin Edwards, the former chairman of Man United, and Irving Scholar, who was running Spurs, they had sort of orchestrated the breakaway and had everything set up with Greg Dyke to favor ITV's bid to uh, to televise the new Premier League from 1992. Um, Greg Dyke, the most famous Brentford fan in the, in the world, I mean. He what? Excuse me? What about me? Well, I, I, <laughs> no, our ex-chairman, yes. yes. Natalie's a, a Brentford fan. Mm-hmm. I noticed the keychain. Yeah. <laughs> what happened was at the last minute when it came time to hold a vote on which bid to uh, to go with, um, and this this all happened in the, a pretty dramatic morning in uh, the Royal Lancaster Hotel, and Alan Sugar was the holdout because Irving Scholar was actually out of Spurs at that point and Alan Sugar had replaced him. And... Alan Sugar had a special interest in backing the Sky bid because he was running a company called Amstrad that sold satellite dishes to Sky. <laughs> and it was due to some late mechanics that he, he was behind, but also some independent things that were happening at Sky, where Rupert Murdoch had made it clear that he desperately wanted to, uh, to bet on the Premier League as a way to grow his new subscription service. They came up with an extra £30 million at the very last minute to uh, to gazump ITV uh, within that meeting, and it, it shocked pretty much everyone in attendance when it happened. Which uh, this is told very well in the book, where like he's on the phone, and I guess the guy is in he's, he's in New York or something. He's calling him yeah, early in the morning. Rupert Murdoch like, is uh, in bed, uh, sort of after four a.m. Sh- and picking up the phone, hearing this gruff colleague of his named Sam Chisholm in uh, in the UK telling him, "Listen, Rupert, we need another thirty million now." Which is not a decision you want to have to make when the phone's just rung uh, and woken you not up before thirty in the morning. Yeah. Wow! But somehow they did it. They did it. That definitely changed the course of Premier League history. Uh, Martin, you've written about wealth in the Premier League in the Times today, and perhaps nothing sums up the money in the Premier League than your findings regarding how much tax players pay. Yeah. So the, um, the every three years, when the aspect to reflect when their TV deals are done, they, the, the Premier League get. EY, the accountants, to do a, a, a review of their um, of their finances and how much they provide to the economy and things like that. Um, and actually, obviously, every time the TV deals have gone up, and, and this one, last one was went up seventy percent, and the one before was seventy percent. So each time that happens, there's a sort of very significant increase in what it provides to the economy. And it's, um, I mean, some of the figures are actually amazing, really. So. Premier League clubs contributed £3.3 billion in tax revenue. And that, £1.1 billion, is how much the Premier League players pay in tax every year. The players themselves, what they do when you pay as you earn or whatever, their 45% comes to £1.1 billion, But you've got more than that in VAT payments, for example. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, so all told, it, it, it comes to £3.3 billion, But yes, yeah, so be interesting to see how much the agents paid in tax, but they're probably all offshore, aren't they? <laughs> Martin, Martin j- just curious. I mean, can you just imagine, just role-play? I know you like role-playing. Um, <laughs> what, what would the alternative history have looked like if Alan Sugar hadn't had his way with his ulterior motive? Like, So if they formed the Premier League with ITV on, and, and back then, younger listeners, I'm assuming there, well, there was no digital television, so ITV had just their one free-to-air channel in the regions. What would they have done, do you think? Well, I think it could have been much like Syria, probably. Um, 
that's what I think it would have been like. What it, what Syria is like now, with you know stadiums only about fifty four percent full on average, um, it could have, that's what it could have been like if it hadn't been that sort of massive investment. One of the arguments that people also make, you know, it's hurt lower division attendances and, and stuff like that by having so much football on television. Well, um, I'm not sure that I don't think it has done. I think there's a sort of trickle down effect. I mean. When you look at, I don't think, I don't, attendances haven't fallen in the lower divisions comparatively. I think they've probably gone up. It'd be interesting to, to yeah, see what the lower division attendances were at that time. I would imagine the other big change, I mean, in my experience, was Bosman. And I almost kind of feel like in the first five years of the Premier League deal, things really weren't that different. No, um, the, the players didn't know the difference Yeah, in the first few years. They just told them it was a, a different name and they carried on. Just a rebrand. As, yeah, exactly. Mm. But Bosman is the other thing that changed it. Like, I mean, I guess what I'm driving at, without Bosman, would the Premier League have been the Premier League? No, because you wouldn't have had the, the influx of foreign players the way um, the way they flooded into the, the Premier League and in many ways elevated the, the standard of the game. I mean, you know, you pick any of those guys from the mid-90s, whether it's Bergkamp at Arsenal who showed the, you know, showed the club... Uh, a completely new sort of fantastical way of playing. Uh, even Ferguson recognizes at, uh, at United that Cantona and his mid-90s teams um, wouldn't have been what they, what they would have been without Cantona because of the way he raised the standard of training. He says in one of his books, Eric Cantona opened my eyes to the importance of practice. The Bosman thing is huge, but also the improvements in the stadiums was a crucial point. And, and this is tied to the Taylor report following the, the Hillsborough tragedy. Putting the two things together, the need to suddenly upgrade the stadiums, which is extremely expensive, and the move towards a huge TV contract, these things are related. The club executives were looking around post-Taylor report and thinking, where are we going to come up with the money to uh, suddenly bring up the, the standard of these stadiums? And at their door suddenly was the, the breakaway and, and Premier League proposal, which is why they, they didn't think too hard about backing it early on. But coming from my under the Taylor report, wasn't it also that a lot of clubs were able to effectively borrow money from the government on very favorable terms? They were, but but and that would that that's another key. I mean, the Premier League. Nobody's going to doubt the Premier League is, is a tremendous commercial success, right? And mm-hmm. people want to take credit. And obviously, Sky was a big part of it. Bosman, as you said, I agree on the upgrade of the stadiums, but the government sometimes gets ignored a little bit in the sense that they actually put up a lot of money, which made. Which made this possible? Money that was then repaid, but absolutely. But the the point is that in the larger context, the clubs in the late '80s and early '90s were looking for money because they needed cash quickly. Well, let's get back onto the, the figures then. And, and Martin, with your piece, which tells us that the Premier League's contributing what seven point six billion to the UK economy, uh, part of your piece uh, gives us more key numbers as well, and and, and tells us how six hundred eighty six thousand overseas visitors come to the Premier League to uh, watch those games that take place. That's 1,800 per match, which is, I think, a very a very plausible figure. Yeah, I'd buy that. Mm-hmm. That is a tremendous amount. It is a huge amount. Absolutely. I mean, when you break it down per match, I mean, 686, you know, it's one of those big numbers. When you break it down, that's, that is a lot. That is a lot. And, I mean, I, I think also, I mean, it, it, it's not just people coming to matches. I think it's people going to you know, stadium tours of Old Trafford or or whatever. But even so, it's, I mean, yes, it's a huge number. Uh, and you're not to you know, if you go to Anfield or Old Trafford, 
that's not surprising when you're milling around outside and and you're hearing um, different accents and different languages. It's 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 a huge, clearly a huge draw from, to countries all over the world. And to to take the example of American fans, when John and I were running around the states meeting people to when we were promoting the book when it came out there. One thing that that really stood out to us was how many fans came up to us and said, I'm going to Emirates later this year, or, you know, I've been saving up so that I can go to Stanford Bridge. Or last year I went to, uh, you know, I went to Wembley and saw Spurs. And, you know, they build trips around this to come to a Premier League game. Or what you also hear a lot of is, you know, my dad and I are planning a trip for this spring. We're hoping the new White Hart Lane will be open. And, um, you know, we figured it out because we can do Fulham on a Saturday Spurs on the Sunday, and then there's a Monday night game at West Ham. So we're trying to catch as many as we can. People build holidays around coming to two or three Premier League games. And for them, then, it becomes a, a kind of formative experience in their Premier League fandom. One of the things that makes your, your book really pop for me is, obviously, you had access to, to owners. And one of them is John Henry. But the guy who really fascinated me was Randy Lerner. Can you talk a little bit about his story and how just on a human level, how he went into it. Because I came away from it thinking there, there's an episode of The of the Simpsons where they decide to uh, attract sort of Hollywood filmmakers and they come, they start filming a movie, and then the citizens of Springfield keep effectively putting new taxes on them, just basically bilking them for money, and then ultimately all these Hollywood folk leave and they're sad and they feel ripped off. And I'm going to be careful what I say now because he's very litigious, but... It's fair to say that Randy Lerner showed up with a ton of money, met Martin O'Neill and other people, and ultimately left with a lot less money than what he came over with. Yes? Randy Lerner was a a fascinating character, uh, first to get to know a bit and and even to reach, because it took a long time to to get him and to convince him to to speak to me. It took several emails that were very carefully crafted and no response, and then out of the blue one day, he responds, and we start, we start emailing, and he says, come out to the house. This is his estate on Long Island. And we went out there, and we started chatting, not about football in particular, but just sort of getting to know each other. I wound up spending six hours there on the first day, um, and immediately it became clear that the Premier League had left him quite traumatized. Um, and I know there are a few Aston Villa fans who would say that his ownership left them quite traumatized, but... You know, in 2006, the sense I got was that he came in with all the right intentions. This was not someone who came in saying, I'm going to revolutionize the Premier League. You know, I'm, I'm going to do things in an American way. He was an Anglophile. He'd, he'd studied over here. He was a big donor to the National Portrait Gallery. And he saw this institution. And, and Aston Villa really is one because of a great old stadium, uh, founder member of the Football League. And he saw himself as a custodian. So he wanted to come in restore it to its former glory and do things kind of the right way to preserve it for the fans. So he did all kinds of things, little, you know, little gestures like giving them scarves at games, buses to away games, things like that. And suddenly this idealized version of the Premier League he imagined for himself turned around and and bit him. He found himself not properly equipped to kind of handle the the vagaries of the transfer market. He appointed Martin O'Neill and they had severe creative differences about how the club should be run. And finally, when... after many years, though. Or did they have... Th- that was about... Because O'Neill was there for, for, for a while. Yeah. They finished 
fifth, yeah. I think, in successive years. And yeah, they they were they had cracked the top six, and they were they were on the verge of the Champions League. But you know, he'd come from the NFL, where executives all come from the same have the same kind of profile. They, you know, they have MBAs and they're lawyers, and and they all sort of operate within a pretty narrow framework of generally above board business practices. I don't think Lerner was prepared for how seat of the pants the Premier League can be. He discovered this wild west that he couldn't run as a side business that he had no familiarity with. And then when O'Neill left the club in 2010, and there was a bitter dispute there between the two, um, he he became so disenchanted that he started pawning off a lot of the um, day-to-day running of the club to people who ended up doing a less than optimal job with it. You know, he had the the pub near the uh, the Holt End restored as well, sank many millions of dollars into that. Um, he saw it as an art project, even running around Bloomsbury with an artist when he was trying to restore the uh, mosaics, I think, in the Trinity Road stand. He remembers trying to find the, the right color tiles and things like that. This was really a, a labor of love for a while. And today, at his house on Long Island, there is one of the stained glass windows from the old Trinity Road stand before the restoration that just hangs in one of the in one of the rooms this is this is someone who lived for aston villa very deeply and um he has a tattoo as well exactly and i had read about it and i had to ask this was towards the tail end of the fourth hour of our second meeting uh to to see it even though it's on his left buttock (laughs) it's not his buttock it's his ankle (laughs) (laughs) but i had to ask and he said yeah it's true and he hiked up his pants and uh sorry trousers and uh, and showed it to me, and it's there, and it's not small. Um, Does Greg Dyke have a Brentford tattoo? Oh, he should, shouldn't he? If he doesn't, he should. Well, there's a great quote in that uh, in, in the book, actually, from from Randy Lerner, where he, he describes it, he's landed in the Wild West, where frauds and charlatans are allowed to roam freely. <laughs> <laughs> but Martin, that was what I was going to ask you: Is it a common theme then that the owners get attracted to the big lights of the Premier League, but actually they become quickly disenchanted by it all? Well. Uh, it certainly happens with, uh, I think, a significant number of them because it is. Um, they're, they're into this. They're, they're used to normal business practices, and they come into this world where shadowy agents and strange characters pop up, and no one's too sure exactly who's doing what, and it's all a bit in a sort of murky, misty area. When no one, well, especially when you're looking at some of the players that come in from Latin, um, Latin America and there's third-party ownership and. Every, Lots of people wanting a piece of the pie. It's um, yeah, I can imagine it's really, really difficult. They suddenly find themselves in a place that they're not comfortable with. This season, with your subscription to the Times and the Sunday Times, you can watch every highlight and every goal from every game in the Premier League. It is just three pounds for three months in our January sale. What always fascinates me is the role that Richard Scudamore played in this and probably still plays in this because what's evident from reading from reading this book is that, you know, you've got you've got heads of states, you've got Russian oligarchs, and all these people or their you know, or their stooges get in a room and they all have different interests because the interests of Bolton aren't gonna be the, the interests of Manchester United. And this guy sits there and somehow when they go out, they speak with one voice. And I don't understand how in the hell Scudamore managed to do that for so long because that is the basis of the Premier League success. And whenever somebody deviates, remember Ian Eyre coming out and saying like, 
well, why should we why should we all like uh, split up the overseas TV rights equally? You know, when we're Liverpool and so on. And then you know, I'm not saying Ian Eyre ended up with like like with his feet in a bucket of cement, but where is he now? He's like somewhere in in in, in Knoxville or someplace like that in the U.S. Right? He disappears. That's remarkable. And obviously, Scudamore is leaving. Whoever replaces him isn't going to be able to do that. Are they, Martin? Well, I think that's why they're struggling to, to replace him because I think um, you know, they, they went down and tried to get some people from the media industry to take over, and, and then they actually realised that it, it's not going to be, a it's not going to be easy matching the TV income in the future because I think it, many people think it's it sort of it's hit a peak and not saying it's not going to peak again in the future, but it's probably going to go down the media rights next time around. And the other thing is um, their sort of realisation that actually you've got to deal with these 20 disparate clubs all with their own agendas. Um, and sometimes they get together to have a combined agenda, which half of them want and half of them don't. And it, yeah, that balancing act that Scudia Ball has managed to pull off fantastically for so long I think that's um, that's going to be really, really tricky, and I think that's why people aren't rushing to take the job, despite the fact it's um, very well rewarded. And one thing about Scudamore is his great strength is is human relationships. He's an incredible salesman, and he has always run the Premier League first and foremost as a TV rights selling organization. And his personal touch is everywhere, from handwritten notes to the various league partners at the end of every season, to reaching out to all of the broadcasters at the end of every season, even the ones who didn't carry the Premier League this year, because they might become bidders in the next cycle. Um, that That's really his genius there. Also, the fact that I think he predates almost all of the owners uh, in the Premier League at this point, and they all have huge respect for the the edifice that he built, um, the way, which is the way they see it. Um, replacing him now as the owners have grown more powerful, and especially the uh, that that clique of the the big six who no longer see themselves necessarily as having the same interests as the other fourteen, is going to be a, a huge challenge. And I can see why it would be quite intimidating to any candidate who comes in. We've spoken about Randy Lerner, so we've we've started to talk about ownership. Um, did the introduction, do you think, of Roman Abramovich to English football in two thousand and three represent a turning point in in the financing of Premier League clubs? Absolutely. I mean, the the only previous time that anyone had seemed prepared to spend their way to success in a very short time was Jack Walker with Blackburn, who took them to the title in ninety five. Um, but when you consider how much Abramovich was worth. He was worth 10 times Jack Walker. Chelsea had very little knowledge about him. You know, they'd, they'd seen him on a Forbes list. They'd Googled him a little bit and not come up with very much. Um, and the deal was done very quickly. But Chelsea was in a position where they weren't quite turning the lights out if they didn't qualify for the Champions League that year. But they were in, in some pretty uh, dire straits financially. Uh, to the point where an accountant gave the team talk before that Liverpool game, if you remember the end of 2003. Um, Birch, was it? Yeah, but Abramovich came in and without regard for how much it would cost him, was prepared to raid the clubs of Europe for any talent that would come to Chelsea and lift the level. Abramovich came in and brought with him a clout uh, financially that they hadn't had access to before. And so, you know, what had been a, a quite parochial club, I'd say, until the mid-90s, was now able to back it up and 
you know, we're talking about, you look at the money they spent early on on guys like Hernan Crespo and Makalele, um, which really set the, the stage for Mourinho to come in and upset the Arsenal United duopoly. But history could have been different because wasn't he looking at another club as well, Abramovich? He had looked at a, a couple other clubs. One was he had looked at Spurs and the story goes that he was in the car going up the Tottenham High Road to meet Daniel Levy when he turns to his advisor from Sibnaft in the car, looks around and says, this is worse than Omsk, which was this grim outpost where they had a refinery. And later on, uh, we discovered that he had been wrongly advised by uh, his financial advisors that Arsenal was not for sale because otherwise he might have thought about that club too. So that would have been, he would have been buying from Danny Fisman then? Yeah, and, and you know, the very, yeah, David Dean, and there was a whole bunch of shareholders at the time who owned large stakes. And maybe we probably would have found that neighborhood more to his liking than Tottenham High Road. (laughs) Or Omsk. Or Omsk. (laughs) But of course, for every success story, there is, uh, there is a Portsmouth as well, for Mm -hmm. example. Uh, Suleiman Al-Fahim owned the club for just six weeks. So it doesn't always go right with owners. Suleiman Al-Fahim would previously been spotted fronting the Abu Dhabi bid for uh, Manchester City. Uh, This was a guy who hosted an Emirati version of The Apprentice at one point. Uh, He was a self-styled chess champion. You can joke about it, but the guy who hosted the U.S. version of The Apprentice did (laughs) rather well. Yeah, I don't know who you're talking Uh, about. (laughs) He he carried that pretty far. Um, But Al-Fahim, you know, he... The Premier League became such an unregulated environment that a guy like Al-Fahim was able to come in and leave after six weeks. And, and you know, the for the owners, there there are so many hard lessons to be learned. And for the clubs, it's a risk as well. Um, Man City was in dire straits uh, before the Abu Dhabi takeover when they belonged to Shinawatra. And there are times even when being part of the Premier League without even attracting a foreign owner is the worst thing for you. Uh, If you remember Bradford, who stayed up miraculously one season and then overspent like crazy the next season thinking they were going to be the next Man United, um, they did themselves in and wound up in uh, administration just a short time afterwards. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We're talking about, obviously, the EFL clubs and championship clubs who are all desperate to, to, to gain promotion to the Premier League, as is well documented. I'm a Brentford fan. So if we were promoted to the Premier League this season, which is a tall order, bear in mind we're 17th in the league right now, what would be the potential financial benefit for Brentford, Joshua? Um, I mean, you would see an influx immediately from the, the Premier League central payments, um, which would put Brentford in a position to earn more from the Premier League in the region of anywhere from 120 to 160 million pounds, earning more from the Premier League immediately than Ligue 1, for instance, would pay PSG for winning the league um, in Premier League prize money. And you would also you would also presumably have a full stadium if you ever finish building it. 
You always see it it's on the going way. very well. Okay. Yeah, you'd want to hurry up. You want to hurry up. Speed up. You want to speed it up to make sure if you go up this season, and then you get those wonderful things called parachute payments, right? Yeah. After you get relegated, well, if you get relegated, <laughs> should you get relegated? Goodness. Okay, everybody's relegated at some point, just about, right? But should you go down, then you get how much over the next three years? You get a share. Uh, in the first year, you're down. It's a 50% share of the Premier League payments, and then it, it sort of diminishes over the next two years. So, you know, it's uh, they let you off easy. Do, do you think we're going to... I mean, this has actually happened the last couple of years in Italy, where clubs been promoted from Serie B, and the owner's like, hang on a minute. I get, obviously, they don't get $100 million, but I think the least they get is... 40 or 35 for finishing last why should i spend any money whatsoever on the team i'm actually going to sell players and go and cash it all in is there enough of a disincentive to do that like some owner who's had it but happens to get promoted you know financially you could argue that something like that makes sense It'd be a smart thing to do now of course you might be hunted down in the street by the fans I don't know. Natalie might be leading the Brentford fans uh, <laughs> with pitchforks if that if someone were to do that. Quite right. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's a huge risk, and you know you're not going to own that club for much longer after that. I don't think. If what you want to do is you think this is a a way of making your fortune, then you can do that. I, I guess you can, but then it probably gets more money from getting promoted and then selling the club because you because you've got this guaranteed a hundred million pounds in tv money that's a fantastic selling point so you'd be pretty stupid if you then not thought i'm just going to take all this money out of the club and i'm not going to pay in my players anymore i think for most people that would seem to be sort of a very strange thing to do the, the premier league is just much too difficult an environment um, and english football is just much too difficult an environment to sort of act as a day trader with clubs more broadly martin for the UEFA's benchmarking report came out for the first time ever, I think. I mean, certainly the first time since the benchmarking report. European clubs as a whole made made a profit. Um, they went from losses of, I think it was 1.7 billion uh, euros to round about 600 million uh, in profit. In the Premier League, I think last season it was, was it 18 clubs were were profitable. But really right around Europe's biggest leagues, more than half the clubs are profitable, um, substantially more. European football as a whole would be profitable even without the Premier League profits. This is something that's kind of new because we used to have this paradigm in the past of the, the owner, philanthropist, blah, 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 who did it for the right reasons or he loved the club. Now it's actually a properly investable business. What should happen? Like, should there be more regulation to try and lower costs for fans or... Should or is this something that's going to come organically? Are we going to have more owners coming in who are different type of owners, being more preoccupied with profits than with results? Because if if I create my lifestyle entertainment brand, I don't really need to go out and win to be profitable, right? If people are still watching me, how do you see this planning out? Yeah, I mean, I I think the uh, the, the, t- the ticket price thing, for example, is a really interesting one because the Premier League brand. And the, the sort of that it sells across the, the the world depends on having the sort of full stadium and the atmosphere and um, and there are I, to me I think there are a few signs like some clubs you know Manchester City for example you, you see empty seats at Manchester City you know they're, they're playing the most amazing football and yet they can't sell out their stadium for some of their league matches so I think actually there is going to be a, a move now we've got all this TV money. 
we need to start doing something about the ticket prices. Because I, I actually think the ticket prices are far, far too much in the Premier League, far too high. And um, this thing about, yes, you can be getting 686,000 foreign visitors coming in, they're probably prepared to pay for those one-off ticket prices. But I think, especially if there's going to be some sort of economic downturn with Brexit, then I think football clubs will have to think about what they're going to be charging. As you rightly say, Martin, if the Premier League is, you know, for most people now, a primarily uh, a television product, full stands are the set dressing. You know, you need that because as, you know, you're selling the authenticity, you're selling that noise and the and the image of uh, these, these stadiums that everyone spent so much money to build having full seats. So that being the case, then, it's interesting, then why build bigger grounds? I mean, if, if, we're, if we're moving, and obviously Chelsea decided not to go and expand the ground, obviously Spurs are going, and I realize these things have a, mm-hmm. have a lead time, but, you know, when you were saying that, I, I know because I get emails from City about how actually they have all sorts of very reasonably priced packages and stuff for kids and old people and whatever. I know, I think Chelsea froze their season ticket prices that they've been frozen since 2012 or something like that. So, you know, ticket prices are high, but certainly the growth has slowed. Is that the future? Is it smaller, more comfortable grounds that look better on television? And, and in that sense, are, are Spurs being foolish by building a bigger ground? I think there's a point where, you know, there is sort of a, a window that, that is probably optimal for, for Premier League um, stadiums now. And uh, far from being a stadium expert, um, <laughs> but if I had to guess, something between, in the like forty to 60,000 range probably is enough, right? It generates the match day revenue you want it to generate, but you don't need, you know, like an American college to have 95,000. Uh, it's impressive, yes, but if... 99% of the people consuming the Premier League are watching it on television. You know, you don't need to spend that fortune that it would take to go from a 60,000-seater ground to an 80,000-seater ground to cater for an extra 20,000 fans. I think as fans, we like to think that people who go to the games are always the most important to a club, but that's the balancing act that a lot of clubs are, are faced with now. They're asking themselves, who, who are we servicing? The 55,000 who come every Saturday or the potential audience of billions around the world? Um, and clubs are having varying degrees of success in figuring that out. Let's talk about something that Martin mentioned, that is Brexit. Sort of hangs over every business at present, doesn't it? Um, how worried, Martin, should Premier League clubs be and, and, and how worried are they? The one thing they're worried about is the if there's an economic downturn, there's less money for people to spend on tickets and on um, Sky, BT, subscriptions, whatever. In two years' time, they will be negotiating with Sky and BT and Amazon and other people for the the next round of TV deals. So I think they are worried that if there is if people have less money uh, for whatever reason to spend on their leisure pursuits, and that could be a big problem. I think the other thing, which is... I think they're probably slight, not quite as concerned about it, is the, the thing about the, the, the work permits and getting access to overseas talent because they still want to have the best players in the world. I think they're probably, um, they don't like the uncertainty about Brexit, about what's going to happen, what would happen if there's a no deal. Would that mean that no foreign players would come in at all without a, a work permit and do they need to fill certain criteria? Um, but I think they're, they're, they're fairly comfortable that they can do a deal with the FA on that. 
and and the other thing that uh, that I would mention is also, and it, it, they're feeling the effect of it now in the transfer market is the the general devaluation of the pound over the past two years. Um, you know, to the tune of of around fifteen percent against the dollar. That's consequential. You know, that adds up very quickly to five, ten, fifteen million pounds on a transfer. Well, the next step that has been discussed this season is the possibility of a European Super League. How likely do we think that is, Joshua? A lot of the conditions that were in place before the breakaway in 1992 are sort of bubbling up again now. And and really the biggest one is the, the tension between the clubs and clubs of different size thinking, hang on, we're we're subsidizing too many clubs that are smaller than we are. Um, and that's that's the case for the big six, especially when it comes to international TV rights. We mentioned before, clubs like Liverpool and Arsenal and, and Man United all think, you know, people from abroad in key markets like uh, like the United States, like East Asia, aren't tuning in to watch Huddersfield. They're tuning in to watch Liverpool and Man United and Chelsea. Um, and they think if we're driving that interest, then shouldn't we be rewarded with the larger slice of the pie? Um, and this was something that the framers of the Premier League had not anticipated in 1992. They just wrote it in that everyone gets an equal share because they weren't making any money from international rights at that time. So that's become the threat and and the big concern. I don't think that in the short term, at least, we'll see uh, a true breakaway. But as we know, there are competing proposals coming from UEFA and FIFA about redesigning international club competitions. Um, And I think what we'll see is a, a gradual inversion over the coming years in priorities between, say, the Champions League and the Premier League, where, and I know there's huge opposition to this at the moment, but it may yet happen, where we get certain Premier League games in midweek um, and Champions League games on the weekends. Because to uh, to a lot of fans, uh, a lot of more casual fans in the rest of the world, you know, the prospect of Chelsea-Fulham is not nearly as exciting to them as, you know, Chelsea-Real Madrid. The thing about the Super League is that there's a ton of opposition and people will go on and on about it, but it's already happened in a different sport, in a sport that, you know, you here in England probably don't take very seriously, but which is very popular in uh, in the southern bits of Europe. And it's happened, and I'm talking about basketball, right? The, the EuroLeague creation where the clubs effectively said, broke away from the basketball equivalent of UEFA and said... We're going to create the Super League on our terms. And there were threats and lawsuits and exclusions and bans and so on. But the brands of the clubs were so strong. And then they created a company with like a 10-year franchise to play. And it's happened. And it's been successful. I mean, the EuroLeague is, is a very successful entity basketball-wise. And three of the clubs who are in the EuroLeague, incidentally, happen to be Barcelona, Real Madrid, and Bayern Munich, which is something that... I think not many people have actually noticed that these clubs, they know how to do this. Mm-hmm. They've done it before in a different sport. You know, I think this is, will always be the threat that the clubs can use to go and beat UEFA. It's the leverage they have when negotiating this. And, and it has value as a threat as well. You know, the, the, within that room of, of Premier League owners, uh, we've heard from owners who say, you know, the big six basically at the drop of a hat will threaten breakaway because they they just love to bring it up and it is their biggest leverage kind of the way uh, in the NFL people used to say uh, you know when their city wouldn't build them a new stadium they'll say they'd say well we'll just move to LA now there are two teams in LA so it's doesn't work anymore 
Uh, Martin, what, what do you think then? What do you think? Yeah, I actually, I mean, I, I actually don't think there is any likelihood of it at all. Say in the next twenty years, at all. You know, you look at the look at the viewing figures for the Champions League, TV viewing figures for the Champions League compared to the Premier League in in, in Britain, and it, they're incredibly small. People still, I'm talking quite parochially about the UK. Fans don't want it, and I think the clubs know that the fans don't want it, and I think that's a really important thing for them. Um, but it does, it, you know, it, yes, of course it suits them, their negotiating position to sort of these breakaway stories to come out. I, I think if there is a, a threat or a likelihood, it, it is, as Gab says, much more likely to involve those teams, Juventus, Barcelona, Real Madrid, because they, uh, I think there's a sort of frustration amongst them that they, they don't have this domestic competition, which is as good as the, as the English one. Joshua, thank you very much. The Club, how the English Premier League became the wildest, richest, most disruptive force in sports is out right now. So many thanks to you, Joshua, and also to you, Martin Ziegler. And also to Jonathan Clegg. Of course. Who, who, yes. Who's also played a hand in, in writing the book, an important yes. one. <laughs> He's probably uh, just waking up about now in New York. There you go. Now remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online or on your smartphone or tablet. It's just £3 for three months in our January sale. Hurry up, not that many days left in January. I think what, like seven, six? Depending if we get an extension, unlikely. And depending on when you're listening to this. Depending when you listen to it. That's right. That's right. Because time is fluid, Natalie. (laughs) Search the Time subscription for more information. We'll be back on Monday after a weekend of fourth round FA Cup action. That's right. The magic is back. (laughs) The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. 